sermon text will be focused on John 20, but we pick up where we left off those who were gathered on Good Friday. And we ended at Psalm 22 and verse 21. Hear now the word of God. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. So far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to our hearts today by his Holy Spirit. We left off on Good Friday in Psalm 22. Jesus was delivered over to death. Things were looking absolutely hopeless. And the question of the psalm is, will the Father answer the cries of his forsaken Son? And what we see in the rest of the psalm And in the Gospels is, yes, he does answer those cries through the physical, historic, bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. There has been no more important event in history than the resurrection of the Son of God. Easter is about a divine Galilean whose heart pumped again, whose lungs filled with oxygen again whose synapses started firing again. If Christ is not raised from the dead, our faith is futile. We are still in our sins, and we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, he has risen from the dead. It's a fact of history, but why is that good news? That's what we want to consider today as we look first at a message of peace. You might be here today struggling with doubt. You might think nothing is really certain. You might be disillusioned. In our culture, we hear that we just create our own truth and our own facts, and there's no certainty on what reality really is. But, beloved, if someone doesn't believe in the triune God, it isn't that they believe in nothing. It's often that they will believe in anything and everything. Something fills the void. 
We're glad if you're here doubting and maybe not sure if you believe. We're glad that you're here because if you doubt, you're not the only one. After the crucifixion of Jesus, the disciples were in absolute despair. Judas was dead by suicide. Peter had crumbled before the questions of a young girl. They're huddled in a room with a door locked in fear that what happened to Christ will happen to them, that they will die. But on that first Resurrection Day Sunday, reports have started to come in. In fact, earlier in John 20, it tells us on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene and other women went to the tomb. That's the Mary children that Jesus cast the demons out of. And then we read that Mary turns to a man she thought was the gardener, and he speaks to her in a way that only Jesus speaks. He says, Mary. And she sees that this is no gardener. This is the risen Lord. It's remarkable that the first person Jesus appears to is a woman. If the resurrection was a myth of the early Christian church, Mary was a bad choice for it to have any credence. Why do I say that? Because in the first century world that they lived in, women had few rights. Their testimony would not be admitted to a court. So if you want to make up a religion, you don't invent it by saying the first person Jesus appeared to was a woman. Why is that here? It's here because it's true. And Jesus appears to her and he says, Mary, I have a task for you. I'm appointing you to go to the apostles. I'm sending you as a messenger to speak the truth of the resurrection to these apostles who will then go to the nations. It speaks of God's grace and the amazing dignity and honor he places on women. Here we are in John 20, verse 19. The disciples have heard Mary's report. Peter and John have seen the empty tomb. It's Sunday evening, the same day of the resurrection. And the disciples are gathered along with those two from the road to Emmaus. That's why the name of the church is what it is, the Emmaus Road. Cleopas and his companion were walking on that road. The risen Christ appeared to them. Their eyes were prevented from seeing him. He sat down and ate with them. Their eyes were opened and he vanished. And they're all gathered in that room. And they're talking about the day that has already happened. And yet the disciples are still afraid. And then all of a sudden, children, Jesus appears in their midst, in the midst of locked doors. And what did they do at first? They didn't rejoice. They thought they were seeing a ghost. And then he shows them his hands and his side. A ghost doesn't have wounds through a body. This is a real resurrected, glorified body. He eats fish as a glorified man. It's a body that's been transformed, that as a Christian, your body will be patterned after one day. It's a fact of history. He appears, but then what does he say? He doesn't just appear and just stand there. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't say, you guys fell asleep when I was in the garden. You scattered when I was on the cross. He says, peace be to you. 
as he speaks, he's fulfilling Psalm 22. In the midst of the congregation, I will tell of your name to my brothers. I will praise you. That's what's happening. Everyone is looking for peace today. Peace between nations. Peace between family members. Peace between neighbors and friends. What is this peace that Jesus speaks of? Beloved, it's the peace of the gospel. That by faith in Christ, we have peace with God. It's the reality that the resurrection is good news because by his resurrection, Jesus has conquered death. On the cross, he conquered sin. And now death is defeated. Satan is defeated. By rising from the dead, it tells us that he is who he says he is, the Son of God. I want to use an illustration from Kevin DeYoung. Imagine that you have five kids in your family. Four of you decide, we're going to go get some fireworks. And we're going to bring them and we're going to shoot them off on our driveway. And you're not really thinking much, kids, because mom and dad are right in the house. And your oldest brother is doing algebra studiously in his room. And you shoot off the fireworks, and mom and dad come out and say, what are you doing? And you're in big trouble. But then your older brother, the studious one, comes down and says, you know what? I am going to take your punishment for you. He had nothing to do with it. So mom and dad say, okay, you are going to be grounded for their disobedience. He's innocent, you're guilty, but he will take your place. As long as your older brother is in his room, you feel as though you're not yet cleared. Until the door opens and big brother comes out, you think the punishment still might come to you. You don't know if this is actually going to work. But once brother is free, you rejoice because your penalty is paid. Mom and dad, don't hold it against you. The room is empty. Parental justice is satisfied. The resurrection of Jesus, DeYoung says, means the death of Christ was enough. Enough to atone for your sin. Enough to reconcile you to the Father. Enough to present you holy in God's sight. Beloved, Jesus won. Sin, death, and the devil lost That is good news. The whole Bible is looking forward to this. When you read in the Old Testament of Jonah being rescued from the whale, of Daniel being delivered from the lion's den, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being saved from the fiery furnace, all of those are types of the resurrection of Jesus to come. And we see there the power of God in those things. But in the resurrection of Christ, God exercises a power over himself. He quenches the flames of his own wrath and justice, hotter than millions of Nebuchadnezzar's furnaces. When Jesus was in the grave, he was under the curse of the law, under the execution of the sentence of the covenant of works, In the day you eat of it, you will die. His resurrection was not only the bringing together of body and soul, not only a stone being removed, 
but a taking off of an infinite weight. The sin of mankind that lay on him. A weight that could not be removed without the strength of God himself. Romans says he's raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. The power of God. Jesus says, peace be with you. I'm sending you, disciples, to bring the message of the gospel to the nations. He breathes on them, John 20. It's a symbolic action of what would take place 50 days later on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out. And here we see a remarkable change. What was it that within a few days transformed a band of mourners who were gathered in an upper room, fearful, into spiritual conquerors of the world? Machen asks. It was not the memory of Jesus' life. It was not the inspiration of being with him. It was the message, he is risen. That's how those disciples went forth and could not be silenced. That's how they said, you can persecute me, you can kill me, but nothing will change what I saw. Christ is risen. That's why the church, by the sovereign power of God, remains today. No other institution or country or ruler has continued, but the church of Jesus has and will, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Psalm 22 spoke of this a thousand years before the coming of Jesus, that psalm of the cross. The ends of all the earth will hear and turn unto the Lord in fear. The gospel expands to all nations. The mission of the world tells of God's good news for the rich and the poor, for every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, to all generations, the old and the young, the one in the nursing home and the one still in the womb. It was 1833. A man named Charles Hodge, who had five children, was a pastor and professor. Two of his children were 10 and 8 years old. They gave a letter to a man named James who had just graduated from seminary and was being sent to an island to do missionary work to bring the gospel to people that had never heard. This 10 and 8-year-old wrote a letter to these people of these nations. Jesus has promised a time will come when the ends of the earth will be his kingdom. God cannot lie. Why don't you help it to come sooner by reading the Bible and loving God and renouncing your idols, they said. Soon there won't be a people group without a Christian in it. This 10 and 8 year old said, my sister and I have gathered two dollars. We bought gospel tracts to give you in this letter. This is 1833. Signed A.A. and Mary Hodge. Friends of the Nations. The result of Jesus' resurrection in a message of peace. Secondly, a confession of faith. Thomas enters the scene. You can see a shift as we look at verse 24. This Thomas had a twin brother. We don't know who this brother was. 
And a lot of people have speculated about Thomas. You might wonder yourself, is he kind of a gloomy, downer, skeptical, negative person? Like an Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? Does he always think of the worst? Is he pessimistic all the time? Earlier in John 11, Thomas heard that Lazarus was dead. He said to his fellow disciples, let's go that we might die also. That's kind of a downer. It's possible, it's possible to be too hard on Thomas. We don't want to speculate too much. But for whatever reason, on that resurrection day, he wasn't with the other disciples in that upper room. We don't know where he was. But because he missed it, he didn't see the resurrected Jesus. Of all Lord's Day Sundays, can you imagine skipping on that one? One person says, one way to be growing as a Christian is to never be absent from the Lord's house unless you're providentially hindered. The assembly for prayer and praise that you skip might be the very gathering that would have cheered and encouraged you. The sermon that you missed might have contained a precious word for your soul. Being absent means someone that could have encouraged you can't, and you can't encourage that person. Thomas wasn't there. He says, I'm willing to believe what you are saying on certain conditions. Thomas is not satisfied, he says, just to see the marks of the nails in Jesus' hands. He's not satisfied only to run his finger through the marks. He's only satisfied if he can put his hand into the gash left by the spear on Jesus' side. Is Thomas over-speaking here? Sounds like it. I will believe it when I see it. Some people say, well, Thomas is good to insist on these things. When you think about it, Thomas is in the same spot you and I are today. Why should he believe if he has never seen the resurrected physical body of Jesus? Why should you believe if you have never seen the resurrected Christ physically? What's wrong with what Thomas is saying here? Thomas is surrounded by men and women he has known for years whose lives have been gloriously transformed by meeting the risen Jesus. The evidence is right before him. He's saying, I won't accept the evidence God gave. Now it's true, as one man says, you don't don't believe just because mom and dad say it by itself. You must believe these things. No, You want to think about these things, don't you, children? But the problem is with Thomas that he doubts what is before him. There's two ways that we come to believe anything, isn't it? One, by our own empirical investigation. We look and we listen and we see. Or the testimony of credible eyewitnesses. How much of what you believe from history have you actually seen and I actually seen? We never saw Abraham Lincoln, but we know from the witnesses that he lived and did these things. Eyewitness testimony is crucial for every event. As you are reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is apostolic eyewitness testimony. It's credible because it comes from those closest to Christ who saw him, who experienced him, who saw the risen Jesus. 
Thomas should have believed on that testimony. Faith in Christ is based on these testimonies. It's not groundless. And if everyone today demanded what Thomas demanded, there would not be a believer in the world. Because we can't touch Jesus' body. Not yet. But instead, there are millions of Christians who believe on the basis of the testimony of the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's eight days later. Thomas is now with the disciples. The room is locked. It's a repeat. But the text tells us in verse 26, eight days later on purpose, when Jesus laid in the tomb from Friday through Sunday, the old order was buried with him. When he rose, a whole new order, a whole new creation begins. That's why it says after eight days. Beloved, this is not just the beginning of another week. It's a new beginning. The biggest story turns a page. The world is never the same again. The resurrection of Christ is the first fruits of the final resurrection, the restoration of all things. So as we gather on the Lord's Day, as God calls us to worship, we remember Christ's finished work, his triumphant resurrection, we anticipate the day of the new creation when all things will be made new. And as we gather today, we participate in the age to come already in this present age. Paul says the end of the ages has come. We have entered the Sabbath rest of Christ by faith. This is another amazing implication of the resurrection for your life. Alistair Begg tells the story of Joan Baez. Any 1960s music fans? She rose to the top. In 1970, she writes, we are the orphans in an age of no tomorrows. She grabbed for everything she thought she could get. She hoped it would satisfy. It didn't. And that cry of 1970 is an epidemic in 2023. And without a resurrected Christ, Joan Baez is right. What answers our deepest questions? Who am I? Where did I come from? Is there a reason for me being here? Where am I going when I die? Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge, believer, of your blessed resurrection one day. As you trust him by faith, you know that you will live as he lives. The day of the new creation has come. Here it is, that eighth day. Jesus appears again. The doors are locked again. This time Thomas is there. And as he appears, he addresses Thomas's doubts. Who told Jesus Thomas was doubting? Who ratted him out? The answer is no one did. Jesus knows Thomas's heart. He knows your heart. He knows my heart. He knows where we struggle. He knows our joys, our fears, our afflictions. He knows the sin that we don't want to admit. And he cares, and he's done something about it. 
Jesus says to Thomas, Thomas, you said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, see my hands. You said, unless I put my finger in the place, bring me your finger. You said, unless I put my hand in my side, bring me your hand, put it in my side. You said, I definitely will not believe. No longer be unbelieving, but believe. At the sight of Jesus, the doubts of this hard-hearted apostle vanish. And Thomas realized, Jesus was with me. He knew all along. One man uses the story of C.S. Lewis from the Narnia Chronicles. Any C.S. Lewis Narnia people that like them? I, I know our kids do. I do. The horse and his boy, Shasta, lives in a far-off country. He hears about Narnia and about the lion Aslan. He's trying to escape to get there. But everything seems to go wrong. And then one day in a fog, a voice speaks to him. It's Aslan, but he didn't know it. The voice says, you know how hard it's been for you, Shasta, to escape? Shasta says, yeah, it's been bad luck that I keep running into so many lions. There was only one lion, says the voice. What do you mean, says Shasta? I was the lion. I was the lion that brought you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you. I was the lion who gave the horses new strength and fear so that you would reach the king in time. I was the lion who you don't remember at all, who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death. So it came to shore where a man sat at midnight to receive you. That's Aslan speaking. But it's C.S. Lewis remembering his own journey to faith in Christ from being an atheist and realizing he was not trying to find God as much as God was trying to find him. And you look back in your life, beloved, and you see, don't you, the providence and the loving kindness of God every step of the way. God pursuing you. Thomas realizes that. Jesus was listening and was with him all along. The Bible doesn't say that Thomas touched him. He didn't need to. When he sees the living Christ, Thomas responds in the highest confession of faith anywhere in the Bible, my Lord and my God. And he worships him. My Lord, the sovereign one. My God, Jesus, is the eternal Son who is the same substance as the Father. He shares glory with the Father. Through him all things were made. He is God. Jesus deals gently with Thomas. He deals gently with you. Come to me, Jesus says. Trust me by faith. Come to me with your questions, your doubts, your sins that you don't want anyone to talk about or know about. Repent of those sins. Bring them to me. Cast them on me. I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest in me. Third, the blessing of hope. Jesus in love rebukes Thomas. Thomas 
Blessed are those who don't see and believe. Jesus does not say that Christianity is a blind leap in the dark. It's not crossing your fingers and saying, I hope, I hope. No, no. Christianity is the reasonable response to good and true evidence. There's nothing wrong with what Thomas said, but Jesus commends faith without sight. Because there's something wrong in the manner in which Thomas reached this level of faith. Thomas should have believed apart from sight. That's how we believe today. We believe based on what we hear in the living word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Do you know what is the highest method of knowing something? The testimony of the word of God. The power of the spirit to bring us to believe. And today, we behold Christ in the gospel no less than if he stood here with us You say, I want more. We do, and Jesus gave us more. He gave us a picture. The night in which he was betrayed, he gave you the bread and the cup. He gave you the Lord's Supper, the visible gospel, God's grace and blessing to you there. You say, I want more. Yes, one day you will see him face to face in glory. But now we walk by faith not yet by sight. Thomas believed on the basis of sight, but he would go forth and proclaim that. Church history says he would go to India, proclaiming the good news of the gospel, that he would die as a martyr there. That's Thomas's response to the risen Christ. What is yours and mine? In Matthew 27, Pilate asked, what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? That's a good question. What do you do with Jesus? Have you said to Jesus what Thomas says? My Lord and my God. If you don't believe, why don't you believe? What are you believing and trusting in instead of Jesus? Aldous Huxley, his name is all over the place. Brave New World. He died in 1963. One Sunday morning, he was gathered, and there were a group of Christians going to church to worship God. He said to one of them, why don't you tell me why you believe? The man says, I'm not going to do that. You're going to argue me and disagree with me. And No, no, I won't, he said. Tell me. The man stayed. He told him about the historic resurrection of Christ, about the impact of Christ in his life. Huxley said afterwards, I wish I could believe that. Why don't you believe it? Well, for me, it would be to acknowledge Christ as Lord. And if he's my Lord, I have to give up my sinful lifestyle, my women, and I don't want to do that. No, not not that. There are many who, in the face of the truth of the resurrection, will not believe. It's a moral problem. It's a spiritual issue. What shall I do with Jesus? If you're an honest doubter today, or if you know someone who is, what you can do is say, I'm going to read John's gospel. And say, God, I don't know whether I believe in Jesus, your son, but I'm willing to be convinced 
teach me from this written testimony the Bible. That's the purpose for which John wrote, he tells us. The gospel of John, the Bible, is that those who were not there, you and I, might believe based on the testimony of those who were. That we might believe that Jesus really is the Son of God, that by believing we may have life in his name. Testimony is the way to faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus is the way to life. If you don't have Christ, you don't have eternal life. To have the life that God created us to have, we find it by faith in the Son of God. John's saying, this is it. There's way more. I can't even begin to tell you how much more. It would be too long. But here is the synopsis. Repent and believe in Jesus and have life through him who lives, who gave his life for you, who was raised from the dead. Beloved, our life in Jesus is not just a future goal. It is a present reality. In Christ, you are united by faith to the risen Jesus. You have all that he possessed at his resurrection and his ascension. This resurrection of Christ is not just a historical footnote. It is true. It also means he's alive and is calling us to his kingdom now, by name. Jesus is risen indeed. Life is worth living. All things work together for the good for those who love God. The curse of sin and death will be removed. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. It's the resurrection that makes the gospel good news. This has another implication for your life and mine. We now live a life worshiping him. Psalm 22, the psalm of the cross, from lament to praise. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. Worship reminds us to keep the end in view. History is moving somewhere to the return of this resurrected and ascended and glorified Jesus. It was the 1950s in communist Russia. Resurrection Day morning. A town village was gathered to hear a debate between a communist academic and a pastor. The academic tried to disprove the Christian faith and the resurrection. After he finished, he spoke to the pastor, Now, prove your risen Savior if you can. The pastor stood before the people, and he spoke. The Lord is risen. And like thunder, the villagers responded, He is risen indeed. And the debate came to an end. The light has come into the world, and the darkness has never been able to extinguish it. Beloved, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia.